0: I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, in a few moments, you're going to listen to
1: another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how the American Empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War.
0: Hey there, Parallaxe's listeners. It has been a rather long week, a difficult week, we have seen the invasion of Ukraine, and I think I can only speak for myself, but I'm not a fan of war, so this development is uh, rather heartbreaking, and my heart goes out to all those in Ukraine right now, as well as those standing in solidarity to oppose war in the U.S., Russia, and the Ukraine. With that being said, I have an episode of for you today, that'll be focusing on a different subject, namely Israel-Palestine. We're going to be speaking later on in the program with one of the most prominent female leaders of the Palestinian struggle, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, who served for a number of years in the Executive Committee of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. She provides a rather important perspective on the Palestinian struggle as someone who has been involved in politics, policy, and peace processes over the years. But before we get to that, we're going to be speaking with returning guest Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle East Policy about the upcoming... Israel LobbyCon, the Transcending the Israel Lobby at Home and Abroad conference, next week on March 3rd. It'll feature such speakers as the aforementioned Dr. Ashrawi, the Israeli journalist Gideon Levy, Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, and many others. We'll be talking about all those speakers, and what the conference is all about, with Grant F. Smith in the following segment. But first, award from one of our sponsors, namely Joseph Matheny, the transmedia storyteller who helped pioneer alternate reality games. He has a new audio drama out called Zen, X-E-N, the Zen of the Other. And let me tell you, it is quite the mind bender, but I think you'll be able to tell that for yourself listening to this promo.
2: Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen, the Zen of the Other, is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. shadows, the void are all painted Oh, Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero. Which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena, or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the Other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen. The Zen of the Other. The audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service.
0: Welcome back to Parallax News. Uh, One of the guests I really love having on, Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle East Policy. How are you doing? Hey, JG, doing well. Thanks for having me on. So, Grant, you have a conference coming up. Uh, It's a collaboration between the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and the Institute for Research Middle East Policy. It's the Israel LobbyCon, not to be confused with uh, the annual uh, Israel Lobbies conference, Uh, although I think they're not having one this year. We can get into that. But uh, this conference is about transcending the Israel Lobby at home and abroad. And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about it.
1: Sure. And yeah, to your point, they're not having their event, which usually takes place just a couple of days after ours. Instead, they've flown leaders of the House over to Israel to confer privately over there. So but this conference was always designed to provide an alternative point of view about what US Middle East policy in particular on Israel and Palestine should be right before their conference. So by getting in there into a good uh, spot, which is the National Press Club, since 2015, we've been able to really uh, get an incredible slate of speakers to pitch better alternatives than what uh, the Israel lobby is pitching.
0: Yeah, you've had some great guests in the past, including a uh, retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, a great friend of this show, and also Zaha Hassan. Uh, whose work I actually found through the Israel Lobby Con. And she's doing some incredible work on, uh, you know, uh, the the human rights centric approach to Israel and Palestine. But who's going to be at the con this year? Yeah. So we have
1: just another incredible lineup of speakers uh, kicking off the day with an answer to the question, why are we here today is uh, distinguished historian. Retired uh, and author Dr. Walter L. Hickson, who just wrote a, a, a voluminous book about the history of APAC, uh, he's going to kick off the conference by kind of framing why it's so important to be at the conference and building awareness about where the lobby would like to take U.S. policy. Uh, He's followed by a keynote from Dr. Hanana Shrawi on what, if any, policies have changed since the Trump administration and any new hopes for Palestine's future. When she was last here, she made the criticism that there's essentially uh, settlers occupying the Trump White House, was her phrasing, and she had just a a massive... uh, group of people who came specifically to see her the last time, so that's going to be very interesting. For,
0: for people uh, and that then, are unfamiliar, would you be able to tell them who Dr. Ashrawi is? Sure. Dr. Hanan Ashrawi uh, was a major figure in the
1: Palestine Liberation Organization. She's had major influences in some of the successful and not-so-successful negotiations for kind of self-rule She runs a nonprofit called MIFTA, which is uh, involved in advancing the Palestinian cause. And she's essentially probably the most uh, prominent female leader who's been inside and outside of the Palestinian legislature. So, you know, we really get a lot out of her on-the-ground perspective on what exactly is happening, and she's very wired into policy initiatives and an entire history of negotiations and interactions with the U S. So she's,
0: uh, she's key and she's doing a keynote. And then maybe you can go through some of the other speakers and, uh, at times I may ask for their background, but absolutely. So, uh,
1: we moved our activism contingent up into the morning to give it a little bit more prominence usually happens right before the, uh, networking, Reception, but we've got Paul Norsey, who's the head of the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, uh, who's going to talk about how they just won a battle within the Virginia legislature against HB 1161, which is an anti-boycott bill. Most states, when these uh, very stealth initiatives have entered their state, usually through ALEC uh, have failed to block them. And, uh, Paul Norsey is going to talk about how they've blocked these things. I, I think two or three times now. And, some and, of and the they tactics, just had
0: that, that victory that you mentioned that they had, that's just within, like, I think the the past week is when I was reading about it. That's right. Yeah. This just happened. And, you know, they're doing
1: things as a coalition and within their group, they have JVP and other sort of major uh, organizations active in the states they all come together there are uh, church-based and other groups pure human rights groups you can see it all on their website vchR.org but they're extremely effective as a counter lobby they do things in Virginia that if they were replicable at the national level would have a major positive impact on US policy so you know they've uh, come to the conference many times and we tend to look at the groups that are coming and say, hmm, we should pull some of these people up on stage because they're so effective. And this will be the second time uh, VCHR will have uh, speakers up on stage. The next speaker is Gene Trabalsi. Um, when they uncovered a major effort by the Institute for Curriculum Studies, which is a, an Israel lobbying group that focuses exclusively on inserting... Uh, pro-Israel sort of uh, dogma into textbooks, they immediately involve themselves in the Department of Education and with the textbook publishers to block a lot of very, uh, I would say, innocuous sounding but inaccurate uh, insertions into textbooks. So Gene Travolsi is going to talk about how they detected that and the ongoing effort they've made to advance genuine scholars to challenge each and every attempt to sort of make uh, Virginia textbooks uh, ideologically aligned with Israeli government talking points, calling settlements neighborhoods, uh, claiming that uh, Palestinians and Arabs have initiated every single war in the Middle East, all sorts of very uh, inaccurate insertions. And she's also going to talk about grassroots actions to block the market entry of a UN designated human rights violator. We're not really revealing or talking much about which company that is, but she certainly will be. So if you wanna find out uh, what's been going on on the ground in the Commonwealth and how they've effectively stopped projects, uh, that'll be a great one to tune into. Uh, Right after her, if you don't have any questions, (laughs) Edward Ahmed Mitchell,
0: That's from uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations. Yeah,
1: that's him. So he's coming in and he's already done sort of press briefings on uh, major news networks, but he's coming in to talk about how CARE was infiltrated by a joint uh, effort by an NGO, Stephen Emerson's NGO, and the Israeli government to plant kind of a spy in the midst of their operations and then direct that spy to undermine their human rights work. That sounds like it's going to be a
0: fascinating story.
1: (laughs) I think it will be, you know, and he's charged. He's not going to give the same press briefing, but he's really going to talk about this is an ongoing thing. I mean, the ADL has done this and other Israel lobby organizations uh, have done infiltration operations, disruption operations. It's not like they're the first ones to be harmed. Uh, And then, you know, of course, we've got the whole NSO group operations against human rights uh, advocates. But, you know, he's really going to be there to talk about this is what uh, we did to detect this. This is what we did to kind of quarantine the problem and, and relaunch our organization uh, had in Ohio and overcome this. And he's a very, uh, eloquent guy. He's a lawyer. He's got excellent, uh, internal emails that they were able to get. I think they may have gotten them through discovery or even, so he's got the goods and he's a very inspiring, uh, high energy speaker. So we're really looking forward to his presentation, you know, and then, Hey, it's followed by a delicious box lunch full of veggie wraps halal and kosher chicken wraps and beverage of your choice. So the lunch is awesome and people get to wander around and check out our uh, co-organizer bookstore, which is transplanted from Adams Morgan into the press club at the Holman Lounge, which is a beautiful facility uh, where they'll have author signings and sales of books and merchandise during lunch. So really great to have Middle East books and more. Uh, bringing in uh, everything they've got, and we've just, you know, breaking news. We just got word that Mondo Weiss is also going to have a table and a bunch of information on their excellent reporting on the uh, developments in the region. They've done some fast, fantastic tracking of the media, the absence in the New York Times of any mention of the apartheid allegations coming out, um, of uh, the human rights uh, organizations. Now a third one, Amnesty International has published a major report. And, and so it's always great to have Mondo Weiss. Um, they've been awesome speakers. They've been uh, you know helping us spread the word about the events. So they'll actually be at the conference. Right after lunch, uh, Don Wagner is going to talk about uh, the influence of Christian Zionism. And what he's detected as kind of growing backlash inside uh, American evangelical churches against uh, what's been a pretty rigid top-down support uh, for pro-Israel policies. Uh, It's not that the Christian Zionist lobby does much policy formulation or even has much money moving on Capitol Hill they don't, but obviously they can be effective blocks at the voting booth. You know, people like Mike Pence and the former Secretary of State have vast uh, followings within these groups, but there is growing backlash. So Don Wagner's gonna talk a little bit about that. And, and, and Don Wagner
0: is a Reverend himself.
1: Yes, he is. So he's an insider. He's not some outside critic. He's been within uh, these circles for, for many years. And we've had uh, speakers at previous conferences um, talk about uh, some of these things as well. It's it's something we keep an eye on and uh, like to hear what's going on um, as a, you know, a portion of our deliverable to talk about the lobby. So then the keynote at 2 p.m. is Gideon
0: Levy. That's going to be fire, as the kids would say. (laughs) I I know Gideon Levy is one of the. I would say he's one of the most heroic journalists we have his coverage of Gaza over the years has been incredible. And, you know, the the documentary about him that Al Jazeera did um, I think it was called against the grain. I've shown that to people and it has changed their mind on Israel and Palestine and what's going on in Gaza. It is, uh, that's going to be a barn burner of a a keynote.
1: Yeah. And he's, he's fundamentally uh, done an incredible amount of uh, education Uh, Simply by coming and speaking, you know, he had a presentation, the first one he did, which I think was in 2015, that was immediately translated into Arabic and posted on, you know, major Facebook sites and all sorts of other social media, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. And people were like, who the heck is this guy? How can he be speaking so frankly about what's going on in his country? And, you know, getting to know him a little bit, he is. Absolutely committed to foundational principles of human rights and, you know, really doesn't take any prisoners when he's discussing what's going on inside. You know, he's writing for Haaretz. He's just written a major article about the apartheid allegations. So I expect we're going to hear a little bit about that. And then, you know, he makes himself available and uh, really likes talking to the conference uh, attendees. So he doesn't just run away after dropping some uh, knowledge on the conference. So we're really looking forward to welcoming him back. Uh, Someone who's never shown up at the conference before is John Kiriakou, who was uh, first a CIA analyst and then a CIA case officer with all sorts of deep experience in the Middle East. And in his interviews and books, he's always dropped hints about, hey, um, there's some major negative influences uh, affecting the U.S. national security state. Uh, disproportionate and widespread influence, whether it's you know within the U.S. and worry about espionage operations or things that can't be said or done, even though a lot of case officers and State Department employees understand the Palestinian narrative as well as the Israeli. But uh, we're going to be asking them a lot of pointed questions about whether any of that can actually affect policy or not, or whether there's still an essential ideological lockdown. So John Kiriakou is a really dynamic speaker. Uh, he's got a couple of great books about going to prison. Kind of the only one who did for. Uh, it, refusing... it was over the, uh,
0: the torture program and, yeah, and information he refused, he gave about that.
1: He refused to engage in the torture program himself or be trained in it. And then uh, he kind of got a bogus charge against him for revealing a CIA asset that led to him doing a few months in prison. So um, you know, you'd think that there would have been other higher ups who would have taken some consequences for the torture program. But of course, uh, no, just him.
0: I was going to say real quick, I I think that that conversation or that that speech by uh, John Kiriakou is going to be really interesting because I, I think there's a lot of overlap uh, with someone like uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who also talks about the way that the US Israel relationship has affected the sort of uh, national security state here
1: yeah exactly and that's you know he's um he like i said he's not the first cia person we've managed to contact and bring in who's had that uh had that view the, the majority though who want to preserve their careers won't speak openly about it so it's always a win to get kind of a national security, state person who's free to talk, come in. And you're right, Larry Wilkerson, pretty much the same, not holding back anything at this point. So we love it when he comes. Uh, Radika Sanaf is going to come in from Palestine Legal. Uh, she has been uh, involved as a lawyer in successful legal strategies, more on a nationwide basis against some of the anti-free speech First Amendment boycott uh, acts, defending clients who have been charged with violating those and then nearly always winning because they are a violation of free speech. So she's going to give another more broad perspective on that whole issue uh, from the standpoint of Palestine legal. And we've had Palestine legal people talking at virtually every conference. They're really good, really... uh, effective uh, in kind of outlining the broader uh, you know, phenomenon of these anti-boycott uh, legislation initiative. Uh, and then finally, to wrap up the whole conference, we're gonna have esteemed uh, professor from uh, the Media Education Center, Sut Jolly, uh, come in and talk about uh, whether American news organizations are getting better or worse in the quality balance and accuracy of their Middle East reporting. He did this phenomenal uh, documentary called "Occupation of the American Minds. And he's not only going to show and comment on the basis of a few of those clips about the central aspects of sort of pro-Israel messaging uh, that has been crafted for the US market by, uh, you know, various Israel lobbying organizations in Conjunction with the Israeli government to respond to things that they're doing, but he's got some new stuff as well that he's going to be rolling out that nobody has ever seen before. So such a tremendous speaker as you might expect, um, and we're looking forward. I know you had him on, uh, looking forward to seeing him. And then on the same stage, stage same panel, same time is going to be Roger Waters of Pink Floyd fame, who narrated the occupation of the American mind when they produced that documentary. And uh, he's going to talk more about the impact of artist boycotts that are uh, really trying to get Israel to, uh, you know, change its ways and how he's been educating his fans. Now, Roger, of course, has been involved in all sorts of human rights uh, activity, whether it's in Latin America, kind of going up against Chevron and the environmental destruction they've done. So, it's not uh, he's involved in a lot more than uh, Israel- Palestine, but we're asking him to focus since he seems to have, you know, kind of a lead role in that arena. Ask him to focus on that. And then finally, we'll have our huge networking opportunity where everyone who came to the conference is uh, able to really talk to the speakers and each other uh, from, you know, around 5:30 to 7 pm. We might have some footage on the zoom from that uh, probably not too much though, since the conference will be wrapping up, but very exciting day. Um, we've just, uh, like I said, before we came on, we're just releasing the program. Uh, you can find it at Israel lobby Con slash, excuse me, Israel lobby org slash capital P program. Um, and that should be in the menu pretty soon. But we wanted, of course, a JG. Michael exclusive. So there you go.
0: Well, I thank you for that. And uh, before we go, I guess, for me, what stands out about this year's conference is you're covering some issues that have even wider ramifications than just for israel and and Palestine. I mean, uh, you know, we're getting to this point where uh, this issue affects human rights. It has an effect on, you know, the values of democracy and whether we believe in those or not. And also, you know, free speech. I mean, with the issue that Paul Norsey is covering, I mean, to me, the anti boycott law is a a big First Amendment issue. If people really care about free speech, they should care about these anti BDS laws, especially when you have people like Alan Leverett from The Arkansas Times, who isn't even a, a pro BDS guy. Uh, being, you know, uh, affected by this, you know, it's just a big issue that's going to affect what we are allowed to say in this country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Leverett's, you know, he really represents sort of the disinterested but victimized American who has been swept into all of this. And yeah, I see this conference is, you know, I listen to your show a lot. This conference is very tied into a lot of the themes and experts you bring in, you know, whether it's that recent program on what is genocide and what are the implications of marginalizing a nation over time and what how do people think about that and how's it evolving so very much in sync with uh, the broader issues and yeah we do try to uh talk about it i think i think gideon levy said it best when uh, a speaker or i forget maybe it was an attendee said hey You know, Gideon, I I really think that we have to admit that this is going against uh, our Jewish values as uh, concerned about human rights. And he said, I I have to disagree. I think uh, this is not so much about Jewish values. This is about human rights. We got to, you know, sort of de-center these sort of internal arguments and just realize what it is. And I think his last article was called something like, if this isn't apartheid, what is, I mean, he's just, uh, he's not taking, uh, he's not taking a, a, a shy position about this fundamental commitment to universal human rights. That's what he said. So he's a great guy. I had the pleasure of, uh, interviewing him and asking questions and, uh, you know, we, uh you just love it when he's able to come, which is, you know, hasn't been uh, possible for the past couple of years. So we're really looking forward to that.
0: Real quick too. I I just wanted to say, you know, I I think we are at a a turning point maybe. And I like the title of this year's conference transcending the Israel lobby at home and abroad, because it it does seem like we're at a turning point. Now I think uh, with the latest uh, developments when it comes to Israel-Palestine. I've seen a lot of younger people who are not being quiet. You know, they're speaking out. Uh, I I think that a lot of people were very defensive of uh, Emily Wilder, the AP journalist who was, I would say, in my view, unfairly fired from AP due to her work with Jewish Voice for Peace uh, while she was in university. I I think a lot of uh, things are changing. And I mean, the Amnesty International report, along with, Uh, Other reports, including the Bet Selim report on human rights abuses uh, by Israel, I think we're at a turning point. I think things are uh, changing a great deal. And actually, uh, Satjali said that on my last show. He thinks that we're in a different place than we were maybe 10 years ago. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, no, I I think it's true. I think, um, you know, I don't like to use words like tipping point and, and all of that, but there is a certain point where There's sudden and rapid change. And, you know, people who have lived a few more decades uh, can say, yeah, tipping point, the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, tipping point, uh, the realization that there was going to be an anti-colonial movement that sweeps through developing countries, tipping point that Americans are going to realize uh, a lot, with a lot more accuracy that their government is engaged in some pretty nefarious activities overseas and get over the shining city and manifest destiny uh, propaganda they've been beamed with. And I think it has a lot to do with people like Sut, a lot to do with uh, genuine rock stars like Roger Waters, who admittedly, well, maybe he's not admitting it, but he's definitely sacrificing some upside commercial potential for staying on this issue. And I would even include people like uh, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt, who, you know, even though they're sort of uh, conservative realists in terms of their worldviews, understand this issue and have, you know, they've basically not been able to be inside of various administrations for their views. They're imminently qualified, but they're never going to be allowed to actually have any policy impact within government and uh certainly include uh, a lot of other people who have spoken at our conference but you know i think their sacrifices are definitely definitely coming uh to a place where we'll recognize that it was worth it and that people have made
0: a shift and also i just wanted to add uh with regards to these sort of anti-boycott laws the uh the anti-BDS or boycott divestment sanctions uh laws. I think in my experience, when I have laid out what these anti-boycott laws entail, the can of worms they open, the Pandora's box they open uh, for free speech in this country, you know, I have yet to meet a person who uh is very supportive of these anti-boycott laws. Now, I'm not talking about the politicians. I'm talking about, you know, uh, everyday Americans that I speak to uh, that aren't necessarily that invested in politics. When you really lay it out for them, they get it, you know, and, and they don't like these anti-boycott laws. And I think uh, when you explain a lot of these other issues to them, you know, they grasp it.
1: Yeah. It's, it's legislation that really has to pass in the dark of night and, it, again, the Virginia people have shown that the moment you do explain it to people or organize, you know, groups that meet with their legislators to say this is why we oppose this, uh, it's pretty easy to get them to agree. And uh, you know, there have been attempts to pass these sorts of things nationwide that even the committee chairman allowed it to be killed in committee because they just saw through it and i again attribute a lot of the experts that have gone up and testified like from jvp they got a professor to talk about why uh in a commission uh, committee why it was not a good thing for free speech so uh but the problem is you know it's almost uh we, we get wound up in responding to all of these terrible legislative ideas And it winds up that that's all you do when there's so much more proactive work that has to be done, not merely these defensive actions after something's been introduced. So, um, you know, are are there there any examples
0: of more proactive work that you can give? Uh,
1: You know, shutting down um, these police exchanges. You've probably had on people from Deadly Exchange where you don't allow your police to go train on alleged anti-terrorist countermeasures in Israel when all they're getting is really sort of a settler colonial police state training manual on how to repress civilian populations during protests. You say, no, we're not going to allow that. But then proactive to me is, okay, an Israeli company that is active in the Golan Heights and West Bank, extracting resources and pushing out the communities around them. We're going to make sure that they don't get any business in this state. We're going to use every measure on the books to make sure they never get permitted. So uh, that's pretty proactive, but what's really proactive. I mean, really proactive is getting people into Congress who will stay good on the issues. And one of the people who came and spoke at one of our earliest conferences uh, is running for Congress in Michigan. And we weren't able to get her to come and speak, but she's definitely an example of someone who's completely familiar with all of the issues and able to, I think, uh, not just be unidimensional, but appeal to a number of other issues from an extremely intelligent, lawyerly way um, uh, to get elected and be in Congress. So, you know, the fact that we've had several people who've spoken at our conference later go on to run uh, for office, I think is the ultimate proactive thing. Because unless we can get members of Congress to stop you know, taking these junkets over to be brainwashed uh, about what is actually going on from an extremely biased trip, um, then, you know, we're never going to get anywhere. So having people in Congress who understand this, that's, in my view, that's extremely
0: proactive. And in closing, how can my listeners, if they want to attend, uh, either, you know, if they're in uh, the DC area, they can attend in person, or Uh, They can do it digitally by Zoom. How can they uh, uh, attend the event? Yeah, so uh,
1: if you're a student, uh, you can go to our site, IsraelLobbyCon.org, and apply for a student ticket, which will almost certainly be granted to go free, get a free lunch, get to meet everybody at the conference, and then attend an extremely uh, fun reception. So do that. If you're, uh, you know, away, far away and can't come, go to the website and get yourself a Zoom ticket. If you're uh, any sort of media journalist, new new media, you want to cover the conference remotely, you can certainly apply for a free press pass. Or if you're coming, apply for a free press pass and uh, we'll give you a badge and you're good to go. So Go to the website, IsraelLobbyCon.org. All those options, all those
0: links are there. And I uh, hope to see you next week. And thank you again, Grant F. Smith, for coming on PureLax Use. Okay, thank you, JG.
3: I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this, Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust, a stretch. You can read about it on my website, BerlinRick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Grant F. Smith and that you will consider attending the Israel LobbyCon on March 3rd, either in person if you're in DC or by Zoom. You can attend digitally. Uh, Tickets are still available and I think you may enjoy attending the event. Next up, we have one of the speakers. From the Israel Lobby Con, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, who should need no introduction to those familiar with the Palestinian Liberation Movement. For those unfamiliar, we'll be covering her biography in the beginning of our conversation, but just so you know, she was a member of the Executive Committee of the Palestinian Liberation Organization for a number of years. In this conversation, we'll be discussing the Palestinian struggle and much, much more, including U.S. policy on Israel-Palestine, with a special focus on that policy during the presidencies of Donald J. Trump and now Joe Biden. Also, at the end, you're going to hear a rather interesting little tidbit about Dr. Ashrawi's encounter with the South African Apartheid Revolutionary, Nelson Mandela. All that and more in my conversation with Dr. Hanan Ashrawi. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on the show. Uh, We'll be speaking at the Israel Lobby Con next week. Hanan Ashrawi, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, how are you doing today?
4: I'm fine, pressed for time, but
0: (laughs) doing well, thank you. So I'm really glad you could join us, um, even uh, for maybe just a brief conversation, but could you tell my listeners a little bit about uh, your involvement in Palestinian uh, politics? Because I I believe you uh, actually started out uh, trying to get into English literature. That's that's what your degree was in. But you've become very involved in uh, Palestinian politics.
4: Could you discuss that a little bit? Well, everything we do as Palestinians is political, by definition. Uh-huh. And so even when I was a student, when I was in school, my father was involved. Uh, uh, they were in Tiberias when uh, 1948 uh, Nakba took place. And so they had to... Uh, leave and they came back to Ramallah and so on. So uh, since before I was born, the Palestinian question was a defining factor of our lives. And when I went to university, actually school and so on, but in university, I joined the General Union of Palestine Students, which was the beginning of my activism. And I was elected as a delegate to the 1969 conference and I proceeded from there uh, in student activism. Uh, Now, uh, official politics uh, is is quite different from being an activist or working within civil society as I do uh, always, or uh, accepting uh, office or running for office, uh, which I did. So I had several uh, incarnations, if you will, but uh, within the same context of working for the Palestinian cause, working for justice, freedom, and just peace and uh, i ran for office twice in the legislative council and then i became a minister of higher education and research and ultimately uh, the uh, a member of the plo executive committee which is our highest political body so uh, i've moved through many different things but i maintained also my academic connections and credentials i was dean of the faculty of arts at Birzeit University, and I'm now on the board of the university. So I've had many roles, but within them all, there was a sort of uh, organic interaction (laughs) uh, that all these things we do for the sake of Palestine, for the sake of uh, achieving our rights and and, uh, achieving uh, just peace. So for
0: many Americans, what do you think that maybe, we miss in our country in the U.S. uh, about the plight of Palestinians and their struggle, or or even more so, what have a lot of
4: Americans uh, been misinformed about over the years? Exactly. I think misinformation or disinformation has been the name of the game, so to speak, because for a long time we were absent. We were either dehumanized or we were kept away from the public discourse and public perceptions or whatever perceptions there were were generated by Israel and the pro-Israel lobby uh, dehumanizing, labeling uh, the Palestinians and uh, at the same time uh, using uh, negative uh, stereotypes and uh, presenting the issue as though Israel was the victim and the Palestinian people were the aggressor. And the whole fact of dating back to 1948 of the grave uh, injustice done to the Palestinians when the state of Israel was created on more than half of Palestine and the expulsion of more than half of the Palestinian people and the series of massacres and so on, all these facts of history were missing. It's as though we emerged in response to Israel, not the fact that we are a people who have been living in Palestine all these years, all these decades and generations and centuries, and that we were dispossessed and displaced and expelled and exiled or oppressed and uh, living under occupation. So that's the whole issue, the, the misrepresentation, number one, the dehumanization, the constant blaming the victim, not really uh, uh, trying to understand the, the whole uh, picture, the, the humanity, the culture, the history, the rights of the Palestinians, and giving Israel, uh, um, I don't want to say a pass, but actually a preferential treatment as living above the law while the Palestinians were deprived of the protection of the law. So the narrative was always Israeli. The narrative was always dominated by these stereotypes and, and labels. And uh, it was, quite misleading. And it was very difficult for us to enter the arena, the domain of uh, public uh, presentation, to present ourselves directly, uh, to make people understand our humanity, let let alone our narrative and our history. And now it's happening. Now you are beginning to see that Uh, There is an understanding, there is more awareness, there is access to information and knowledge. And with knowledge, you have responsibility. Uh, So I must say there is an increasing, uh, I don't want to say insistence, but willingness on the part of the uh, American public uh, to hear the the Palestinian side, the Palestinian version to uh, try to understand what they've been missing. It's very hard to unlearn what they have been taught all these years, but it's very important for them to uh, work within the, the facts that they are now beginning to see and to deal with. Uh, and particularly when uh, we have forged relations with the rights community, with the minorities, with people who uh, understand That justice for uh, all means justice for one means justice for all, and that the Palestinians have to be understood uh, and and have to be listened to. And the emerging solidarity movement is just extremely encouraging uh, within academic circles, universities, uh, among, as I said, minorities and other groups within uh, uh, different movements for rights and, and for justice. Uh, including Black Lives Matter in, including uh, uh, the women's movement and LGBTQ and so on. So there, are, there is this identification and we have become part of the conversation. We are no longer the other, the alien, the, the labeled, you're either the terrorist or the refugee. So you're not human in many ways. And that is something that the American public is beginning to be aware of. Yeah, I wanted to say in that
0: regard, it's really heartening to see uh, the sort of change in public opinion uh, over just you know the past decade. I mean, I, I remember uh, when I was growing up, you had these horrible, uh, just toxic uh, propaganda outlets like Memory uh, that were oh, out there. And it, yeah. it seems like the propaganda matrix is really uh, starting to break down. People are starting to see the Palestinian side of things. Why do you think that is?
4: Well, because Israel relied on mainstream media and mainstream media had their own uh, agenda. And of course, they were dominated by uh, pro-Israeli lobbies or pro-Israeli groups and so on. And in in many ways, the the Israel lobby set the agenda. And Israel had a very well-oiled and well-financed machine Uh, to disseminate its own version and its own distortions of the Palestinian reality. So that filled the the airspace and the airwaves (laughs) and the public space. Uh, Now with social media and with direct access to information and with witness programs and uh, people who who are beginning to see for themselves or to hear from direct witnesses and so on, that everything they've been taught has been entirely misleading. And so within, if you want to say 10 years, yes, we can talk about social media and the access uh, to information, but also the fact that the Palestinians and the younger generation of Palestinians are beginning to uh, have an impact to present themselves through uh, social media and that you don't have to wait to hear from the Israeli Hasbara machine, you know, uh, to understand the the Palestinians. And we don't have the money or the means to pay people and and so on, which Israel has done all these years. Uh, What we have uh, is, is, uh, uh, I'd say, hundreds of volunteers of people who want to address the uh, the, the American and, and the global public directly and who, take their smartphones and take films and when they are being beaten or their house is demolished, they, they take a, a, a film with their smartphone and disseminate it and it goes on YouTube or, or others or uh, Twitter and, and so on. So people see it and people understand, well, what's happening? Something is wrong. That the mainstream media have always presented the Israeli version. Uh, you rarely saw a Palestinian home demolished or. Palestinians being killed on the spot in extrajudicial executions or how the settlements are, you know, stealing the land and so on. Now, people are seeing it. And they have, there is a conversation. There was a dialogue, of course, with like-minded people, with rights activists and so on, in the States and elsewhere. And uh, now there is a global conversation. And Palestine has become part of this rights conversation and the global rule of law. And the fact that uh, you have to look at people uh, uh, within the the, uh, uh, equality spectrum rather than within the prism of Israel and what's good for Israel and and so on. And the dismissive attitude, if not the distortions and the humanism, the dismissive attitude as though we had no existence prior to the, the negation of our very identity and history and culture and rights, these things now are being challenged, not just questioned. And uh, part of it is social media, part of it is increased awareness, education, uh, connection, People's, uh, need, uh, feel that they, people feel that they need to know that they cannot be misled uh, so often,
0: yeah. An interesting development that I've seen is uh, e- even within, uh, you know, the, the Jewish community, there are uh, people saying, you know, I, I think that the, the two-state solution isn't viable anymore. Uh, I see a lot of people pushing for uh, a one-state solution. Uh, what do you think has led to, you know, I would say the seeming death of uh, the two-state solution? Look, the
4: two-state solution was not our ideal solution. But it was a solution, a, a, a very painful compromise that we made and accepted to recognize Israel on 78% of historical Palestine uh, because we wanted to have our own state. I mean, we wanted to live in freedom and, and dignity and sovereignty on our own land. And this was the PLO agenda for a long time. But even that was unacceptable to Israel because the plan for Israel was. <clears throat> to superimpose greater Israel on all of historical Palestine, and turn the Palestinians into population centers, sort of isolated and besieged, while Israel annexes, expands and annexes its land, their lands and so on. Uh, in 1969, actually, 68-69, the Palestinians proposed the one-state solution, and it was an official presentation. I was in the uh, I told you the journal Union of Palestine Students and we propose to have a single uh, sectarian or uh, <laughs> a single non-sectarian democratic, uh, some people called it, uh, 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 well, it's non-sectarian inclusive state, democratic state, uh, where people of all faiths can can live together in peace and so on. And of course, and equality. That was rejected entirely by the Zionist movement because they wanted an exclusively Jewish state. Now, there were, of course, Palestinian Jews. and They were a minority then, but they were, and many of them remained actively involved with the Palestinian cause, but most of them were taken up with the Zionist agenda. Uh, Now, the the non-Zionist movement or the, movement for one state among the Jews uh, is mainly uh, outside Palestine. There are very few within historical Palestine, within Israel, 48 Israel, uh, but it's mainly outside. And you have organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace and, and so on, who are doing a tremendous job in speaking out and in talking about the fact that you cannot have an exclusive, uh, exclusivist and exclusionary state exclusively for Jews, where they say they're the only ones who can have the right to self-determination, while the indigenous people have no rights whatsoever. <laughs> that somehow doesn't work. And of course, now you have all this literature, all these studies made, starting with we have to acknowledge Din and and B'Tselem and uh, human rights Watch and all the way up to, uh, to to Amnesty International saying that what has been created is an apartheid system because you have two systems within one state that has coercively imposed on all of Palestine a system of racism and discrimination where you have two peoples, one enjoying full rights and the other being deprived of all rights. So this, this kind of um, uh, conclusion also had an impact. So people said, since Israel has created the state already in which it has held captive the indigenous people, the Palestinians, and it, and it is stealing their rights, is stealing their lands and their resources, then the the thing to ask for is to struggle, to have a joint struggle for equal rights. Now, that is the basis of the one-state solution. Uh, The thing is, I believe right now that neither one state nor two states (laughs) is available as a solution. What we have to do is launch a joint struggle among like-minded people of conscience within Israel, Palestine, and all over the world for equal rights rights, freedom, dignity and self-determination. Uh, this is the the title of our struggle now and we'll discuss the nature of the political system and structure when we get our rights. And,
0: and I think there's been you know developments that you know are hopeful. I, I just read that you know there, there's been a freeze on the eviction of um, a Palestinian family in Sheikh Jara uh, so I, I'm hoping that we're having an impact where, you know, this won't be tolerated anymore.
4: I, I hope so. I mean, this is one incident because there are hundreds of families who are being threatened in Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah, in Silwan, in Aisawiyah, in Jabal al All these areas around Jerusalem are being, and within Jerusalem, are being ethnically cleansed in order to carry out what we call a demographic engineering plan uh, to, have, to bring in more Jews within the city and evict, or I don't even so ev- say evict, they are kicked out, they are uh, ethnically cleansed from their own homes uh, in specific areas that are well studied. It's not just by chance. And it's not just a real estate problem. It's It's a real demographic engineering and it's a transformation of the character and demography of Jerusalem itself. So I would say that, yeah, while you have one exception in which the eviction or the ethnic cleansing was suspended, it doesn't mean it was negated or turned down. And it is one case, the exception among hundreds of cases in Jerusalem while daily, you have homes being demolished. In Silwan, you already have uh, uh, many homes being demolished and people being kicked out of their homes. In the old city, you already have uh, houses and buildings being taken over by settlers and the uh, original owners kicked out. So this is ongoing. Uh, Sheikh Jarrah is visible because we've had, as, as you alluded to, I think that there was tremendous solidarity with Sheikh Jarrah. People heard of Sheikh Jarrah. Hmm? And the uh, social media worked effectively in order to bring the plight of Sheikh Jarrah because the people themselves who were there stood their grounds. And they had tremendous solidarity from Israeli progressives and from the international community who came and stayed with them and who came and, and uh, Uh, demonstrated with them and faced the Israeli uh, police, border guards and army with them and uh, therefore it became a a sort of symbolic (laughs) uh, place that is very visible and that people uh, identified with and a struggle that was understood uh, clearly. So, um, yes you have, I mean we have to be uh, appreciative of little victories but the situation is extremely precarious and the evictions and, and the, the ethnic cleansing is still going on and the house demolitions are taking place daily and the transformation uh, of the character of Jerusalem is taking place constantly and daily.
0: Well, e- even you know what, what has really always horrified me are, and you've probably come across people like this, but uh, these sort of voices that uh, I, I would say represent the farthest right of, of Israel, the sort of Kahanist factions, that it's almost like they want to see an erasure of, of Palestinian identity, where they'll say uh, there are no Palestinians, there are only oh, yeah. Arabs. And it's so horrifying uh, to hear <laughs> yeah. people pushing that line.
4: Absolutely. This is the line that was used uh, with the early Zionist movement when they said that this was a land without a people for a people without a land. Uh, This was a land inhabited by people for centuries and centuries. We go back, I go back to the oldest Christian tradition in the world. I mean, how can you sort of deny my very existence, you know? And the Palestinian culture and continuity in Palestine is is documented, it is well known, you don't need to invent it. But this was part of the propaganda, part of the uh, misleading discourse that uh, course, there are no Palestinians, or Palestinians uh, came from other Arab countries, uh, or they came because Israel created a, a, a state that was prosperous or whatever. This is ridiculous. I mean, this was part of the, the misleading uh, propaganda and the erasure of a whole people and the whole nation. But they are very busy, actually, um, appropriating our history and our culture, and our customs and our lands, and even the names of our places. As you notice, they build the settlement and they they name it in a name close to the Palestinian villages around it or towns around it. Uh, they take our names. Uh, they 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 appropriated our uh, food. <laughs> when the when you hear people talk about Israeli hummus or Israeli tabbouleh or or uh, you know, now even Israeli freak or whatever, that uh, they're doing this uh, as a way of inventing their own, inventing a culture and taking over a culture of a people who already existed. Even the crusted, uh, you saw how uh, during the the Miss Universe uh, contest, they made them, they gave them Palestinian embroidered dresses, uh, costumes with crusted. And they made them uh, roll vine leaves, which is part of our Palestinian traditional foods and so on. So there, you know, in front of the whole world, they were stealing <laughs> our clothes and our food, and appropriating it and telling the world it's ours. But this, Rimanzi, I always quote Elan Pape because he was among the earliest who wrote about this. And his book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine must be read over and over again because he really predicted what is happening and he knew. He described it as the the displacement-replacement paradigm. You displace a whole people with their history, with their culture, with their identity, and physically, geographically, (laughs) you you, uh, remove them and you replace them with another people. And not only you replace them with another people, but you take over their culture and their names and, and so on. It's very, very interesting. And I think this is what's been happening systematically. And that's why Palestinians are very possessive about not just our very existence, which is being attacked and denied, but all elements of our identity and our history and our culture. So before we close out, uh, the, the uh, keynote that you'll be
0: giving at the Israel Lobby Con will be about the policies towards Palestine under Trump and now under Biden. Could you speak uh, just maybe briefly about, uh, you know, what Biden or or what Trump uh, tried to do uh, when it came to Palestine? I I think he was trying to grind the resistance into submission and he was unsuccessful in that. Is, Is that the case? And was there has there been any changes under the Biden administration?
4: That's supposedly the title of my presentation, so I don't want to preempt it, but let me say very clearly that there is a sort of standard American policy of direct identification with Israel, Israel as our special ally, our strategic ally, Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, all these these, uh, slogans that we've heard for years and years. And of course, the US presents Israel with a cover to act with full impunity, It protects it from any kind of accountability anywhere. So that's, and it's very generous. I mean, the $3.8 billion a year that it gives to Israel is just a small portion of what Israel gets in terms of preferential treatment and uh, tax-free funding and so on from the US. So that we know. And we've been having an, an probably an ongoing dialogue with the American with successive American administrations trying to show them how this is counterproductive. And they should know we don't need to tell them. but the fact is that if you believe in human rights, you believe in equal rights and you don't punish the Palestinians. But anyway, when when Trump came took over, he took over on this tradition. Huh? He built on something, but he also, uh, uh, took it to the extreme. He added the uh, dimension of populism, of white supremacy, of ideology. He brought into play the, the uh, uh, I don't want to say the Christian evangelicals, the extreme fundamentalist right, uh, as, as through Pence, with the extreme uh, uh, Jewish fundamentalists like. Uh, Uh, David Friedman and and Jason Greenblatt, and so on, with the extreme Zionists like uh, uh, Jared Kushner. (laughs) And instead of their becoming an influence on uh, decision-making in the States, they became decision-makers. And they took decisions that violated international law, international humanitarian law, American interests, and so on. They negated everything that had to do with Palestinian rights, beginning with the fact that uh, they said there is no occupation. They introduced the language of ideology. Friedman himself was, kept saying, this is a Jewish land and the Jews have had to build them as if land has a religion anyway. Um, and uh, th- that the occupation is not illegal, or there is no occupation. There are settlements are not illegal. Note that there is wine <laughs> being Uh, produced in a a settlement in the West Bank uh, called Pompeo. (laughs) And there is a a settlement in in, uh, uh, the Golan Heights, named after Trump. So they moved from being a strategic ally to being a partner in crime. Hmm? And to defending the settlements, the land uh, confiscation, the annexation, And so on. And as you said, the real plan was to bash the Palestinians into submission. So they decided to to punish the Palestinians in every possible way. Every possible way. Withholding funding, uh, especially trying to change the definition of Palestinian refugees, and trying to destroy UNRWA, which is a United Nations Refugee and Works Agency, that looks after the Palestinian refugees because they wanted to give this as a gift to Israel that there are no Palestinian refugees left anymore. And uh, uh, moved beyond that, I mean, in in every possible way to dehumanize the Palestinians, uh, to turn this into an economic issue, that all you need to do was give the the Palestinians uh, a fistful of dollars and they will be very happy wherever they are, but deny them their basic rights. So even the two-state solution was denied because they adopted Netanyahu's view that there must be no two-state solution, there must be no Palestinian state, no Palestinian sovereignty, this is all greater Israel. So they, they actually participated in breaking and in violating international law. They moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem, which by international law is occupied territory, it's a Palestinian city. And now the American embassy is in Jerusalem rather than in Tel Aviv. Uh, They they recognize the annexation of Jerusalem the way they recognize the annexation of the Golan Heights. So that, again, is being a partner in crime (laughs) because settlements are a war crime, uh, as you know, as defined by the Rome Statute. And they did everything possible. to empower Israel as the aggressor, and at the same time to weaken the Palestinians through uh, blackmail and pressure and so on. And they even put pressure on the Arab countries not to uh, help the Palestinians, not to fund the Palestinians. They put pressure on the Palestinians not to enter into any kind of international agreement and, and so on. I mean, it's too long. The list is very long to tell you everything that they've done. But it's just that they they uh, rolled up their sleeves and they became partners. It's like David Friedman taking a sledgehammer and and, uh, you know, striking underground at the uh, from Silwan to the old city, <clears throat> which means he is a partner in destroying the very foundations of peace, literally. <laughs> we saw him. So he became actively involved in an ideological, Uh, presentation of an illegal expansion of Israel. That uh, has been happening all along. Now, when uh, uh, Biden took over, of course, he said he will undo a lot of the damage. He will reopen the uh, consulate that was closed because as you know, the American consulate in Jerusalem dates back to 1844. And he said he will reopen it because it was the diplomatic representation to Palestine because Israel didn't exist in 1944. And we considered all the consulates general in Jerusalem as ours. They were our diplomatic uh, representation. And because they recognized Israel's annexation of Jerusalem in a de facto way, they decided to close down, Trump decided to close down the consulate the way they closed down our office, representative office in Washington, and uh, cut off diplomatic ties. So they said, no, Biden promised to do all these things. He promised to undo the damage. He promised he would work to uh, restore assistance to the Palestinians, particularly the refugees and in Gaza and and so on. And he talked about equal measure of uh, rights, of freedom and and, uh, security and prosperity and even democracy for both Palestinians and Israelis, but proceeded to do nothing about it. He just put us on the back burner. He gave Israel more time to create facts. He did not hold Israel to account. He postponed the issue by saying he has other pressing issues, some of them domestic and some of them global. The US is, of course, losing, in in many ways, its global influence. Internationally, its it's, uh, uh, influence is is waning. And uh, they've decided to pivot or refocus on other areas leaving the Middle East, as they said. Uh, so when you do that, and when you still support Israel, I mean, Nancy Pelosi said something really horrific. She said, Israel is the greatest political achievement of the 20th century. Totally ignoring the Nakba or the catastrophe that befell the Palestinians, but totally ignoring any, any other achievement. I mean, what's the UN, for sake? <laughs> What are all these institutions and agreements and, and discoveries and inventions, they, they don't count because Israel is the greatest political achievement. And they, they still are reciting the same pablum, the same statements, you know, about uh, our, our relationship with Israel is sacrosanct. Israel's security is sacrosanct and so on, which is very dismissive of Palestinian rights and Palestinian security. And they increased the funding for Israel not just Trump, but also the Obama administration. And they did nothing to curb Israeli violations. And by the way, this government in Israel coalition is the most extreme. And it has really escalated home demolitions, extrajudicial killings, uh, uh, confiscations, and settler violence, of course, Uh, and without any kind of intervention or accountability. And uh, the Biden administration has done nothing. Even when an American citizen was killed, they did nothing. But when an American uh, Israeli citizen was killed in in Tel Aviv in a, a random act of violence by a Palestinian, they adopted the Taylor Force Act, they punished all of the Palestinians and so on. But when the Israeli intelligence army kills an American of Palestinian origin, They do nothing about it. They say, we trust Israel to investigate. So there is, of course, there is double standards of of the greatest dimension. And of course, they didn't fulfill any human rights agenda. And uh, now I I think that it it makes it even worse because they they have other challenges that are challenging American hegemony all over the world. And they are busy now trying to Uh, reposition Israel again, the way Trump did, as a major force, a major power in the region, as a military power, an economic power, an intelligence power, a political power. And they are pushing, I mean, Trump either blackmailed or bribed Arab regimes, uh, primarily despotic regimes, to make uh, peace with Israel, where there was no war, of course. And uh, now the the American ambassador has even invited the representatives, the ambassadors of these countries to meet in Israel with them, to see how they can uh, enhance this relationship and how they can persuade other Arab countries to normalize with Israel, which to us is normalizing with the occupation and with uh, a grave injustice. Real real
0: quick, because I wanna end on a, a positive note here. I know a lot of people will listen to everything you've just said and, and will think, you know, uh, it sounds uh, like so dreary, like w- what hope is there? But I, I think there is a lot of hope because I think as long as there's Palestinians, uh, the struggle will continue. I don't think the Palestinians are going to go a- a- and be beaten into submission.
4: So do you think there is uh, hope for the future? I'm convinced that that is hope for the future. I'm convinced that the Palestinian cause is a just cause, it's a human cause, and the Palestinian people have refused to lie down and die quietly or to accept the fact of their negation and erasure. We have been persistent and we have been extremely resilient, but what gives us more hope is the fact that we have allies. Now that there are, while governments exhibit cowardice and and lack of of will, political will to stand up to Israel and with Palestine that there are people who are challenging uh, this this policy and there are people who are standing up and speaking out and uh, making the Palestinian uh, issue and the Palestinian cause heard and felt and as I said, making it part of the uh, global conversation and the rights uh, movement. I remember in the old days when it was Mandela, when he came out of jail, I, I, I remember in the students' days, the, the ANC used to tell us, don't forget us when you have your state. And then when I went, when Mandela came out of jail, he invited me to see him. And uh, I said, now you don't forget us. Now that you are free, <laughs> we need to be free. So it's people like that, it's people of principle. Uh, Mandela, Desmond Tutu, others, uh, uh, Angela Davis, people who have uh, taken, you have many in the States, you have movements in the States and in Europe who have taken a position of courage and who understand that we all stand together for. it's not just a political imperative, it's, it's a moral imperative, it's a human imperative. It's, it's a question of justice. And so you may hide the truth for a while, you may distort reality for a while, but ultimately knowledge is responsibility and people who share these values and, and this vision will stand up and speak out and will challenge decision makers. And this is happening actually. So I, I feel that the future holds a lot of promise and the younger generation in Palestine exhibited because people, who was it? I think Aba, uh, not Aba, Ben-Gurion who said the old will die and the young will forget. So he was dismissive of the Palestinians. But if you look at any Palestinian anywhere in the world, he, he or she holds on to uh, their, their identity, their humanity and their rights. Uh, and, and that gives us hope, whether we are in the West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza, or in 48 Palestine, or in the refugee camps in, in the Arab world, or in the States and in Europe, expats and exiles, we all share the same vision, the same commitment. And this means that you cannot dismiss us, you cannot displace us, <laughs> and that no matter what you do now, with, with tremendous injustice and pain, that the Palestinian cause isn't ready to go away or disappear, and we're not willing to commit collective amnesia. <laughs> so this is something that, that gives us hope and promise. And I, and our allies and this network, Solidarity Network, is very promising and, and uh, uh, extremely uh, empowering.
0: Well, I want to thank you again, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi. Uh, for joining Parallax
4: Views. Thank you, it's my pleasure. Well,
0: that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you've enjoyed my conversations with Grant F. Smith and Dr. Hanan Ashrawi. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider helping me out financially by way of Patreon at patreon.com/parallaxviews once again that's patreon.com/parallaxviews there's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier and a $5, $10 and $15 tier in between and at the $10 tier and above you get a producer's credit shout out so producer's credit shout outs to Mark Arlen, Spartacus Gunner Ed Gratz James Mickey Brian the War Nerd, the Forty Two Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, and the Mirror Framework. That's M E E R Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax, use well. Consider joining those listeners and supporting me at the $10 tier, or above, at, one last time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with my views To Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it,
5: just to prohibit If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you, know, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I am I know of the great anxiety, problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why...